0: The Inversions, Part 4, Creation Without a Struggle In the Beginning God Created Creation was covered in the last inversion with creation, quote, out of nothing. But there is more to be said about the verb create and how God creates. At this point, I will venture beyond the first verse of Genesis 1 and finally move on to verses 1 through 3. Here are the first three verses of Genesis, which are worth committing to memory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The first thing to notice about this beginning, this creation, is that there is no battle or struggle. The maker here has no writer's block, no hand cramping. He's not in a rush to complete the project. The painter doesn't run out of paint. He isn't interrupted by deliveries or doorbells or drop-ins. Neither is there any negotiation nor argument. The flow of creation is gentle. As God simply states, let there be light. No laser show or fireworks are needed. No soundtrack, no music video. God creates in peace. And most of all, we should notice that God is not attacked or killed or overthrown in any way. And why is that important? Well, this inversion of a creation story flips the Greek, Sumerian, and other creation stories on their head. Because they all contain a battle, a struggle, or a war in which the victorious God wins. There is no struggle in Genesis. There's not even a competition of any kind. This is unlike the Sumerian, Norse, Greek, the Minyang, Cherokee, and really just about every other creation story. In other words, Genesis is about simple beauty, not struggle. Creation is an unfolding, not a mashup. Consider the difference between humans constructing a building with metal, wood, cranes, and hard hats, versus a seed in soil receiving rain and growing into a flower. Jesus spoke of this when he compared Solomon's man-made opulence against a simple flower, when he said, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. All that we can make pales to one of God's wild lilies. In the gentle act of creation, God merely speaks, Let there be light. It makes all other creation stories violent and slightly ridiculous. The false gods seem to be trying too hard. Against the beauty of Let There Be Light, the Sumerian story of Marduk's conquering of the primordial god reads kind of like a cheesy TV drama, or like Game of Thrones, or like the aptly named HBO series Succession. And this is the inversion. A succession myth is built into nearly every pagan creation story, where the primordial god or gods fight, and the first gods are overthrown. These other creation myths tell of a victory that never happened. Genesis declares that there was no fight whatsoever. There wasn't even an argument or a dirty look. And that's because there is only one god, the god most high, the author, the creator, the artist. And once again, Genesis calmly calls all other mythologies absurd, because they are. They may entertain us, but so does a gladiator fight, which doesn't make it right. James Joyce, the author who rejected the very God who gave him his great talent to write, knew much about the creation of literary works. In his book, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Joyce wrote about a version of God that seems quite right and quite wrong at the same time. He wrote, The artist, like the God of creation, remains within or behind or beyond or above his handiwork, invisible, refined out of existence, indifferent, paring his fingernails. There is something wonderful about this quote and something false. The God who creates in Genesis does indeed remain within, behind, beyond, and above his creation. Unlike human artists, he does not struggle in the act of creation as it is a labor of love. When he completes the creation, he rests, like Joyce's image of the creator. I like the image of God seated in heaven, paring his fingernails, even though he would not need to do so. Uh, Joyce is correct about God's presence and about his resting, but he makes an error in the middle where he says that God is, quote, refined out of existence, and, quote, indifferent. In other words... Joyce's character is like Thomas Jefferson's view of God. He envisions God in the kind of deist view, like a clockmaker or a watchmaker, who creates the heavens and earth, and then moves on, not caring at all what will happen to it. The God who creates in Genesis is not like that. He's not like the pagan gods who lust for power, nor is he like the Joyce version, who creates and then drifts off distantly. This is indeed a central inversion to understanding the God of the Bible, in that when God speaks to create, he brings all things into being and actively sustains the creation forever after. While he could be paring his fingernails at rest, he's never indifferent or distant. He is an all powerful creator who is also a loving father, without being an overbearing one. Free will is granted to all. And free will often feels like a cross, but is most assuredly a gift for those who read the Gospels all the way to the end. In addition, the constraints of time and space, which seem a burden, are the teaching tools God uses to tame us after the fall. The succession myths and science theories that throw out God only hurt us. God is fine whether we love Him or ignore Him, but when we do not conform our will to God's will, it is we who struggle not God. In the Sumerian and Greek myths, the gods are paranoid about who will take their power. Even Zeus is sneaking around so his wife Hera doesn't catch him in one of his little escapades. But the god of Genesis has no threats, no challengers, no contenders, no scolds, no scourges, because God is like Joyce's all-powerful creator who is within, above, behind, beyond his creation. But he is not like James Joyce's meh version of God who could care less about his work. This is the difference between human works of art versus human life, as in children. This is an important lesson for all those who dislike children and see their own lives as a work of art. Guilty right here when I was younger. Um, The ultimate work of art is the generation of new life and dying to self in favor of living to serve that life. Now, to write a story is to create, but it is not new life. When I was young, I was obsessed with writing and publishing a novel, and I succeeded. I I wrote one that sold several thousand copies, and that was nice, but that creation now sits on a shelf and only comes to life if I open it, and I rarely do. Then I had children and realized that writing a novel is a dead letter compared to the work of a family. In other words, To see God as merely the writer of a story is to misunderstand the living and the dead. And James Joyce, who wrote a famous short story about, quote, the title was The Dead, was himself flatlined because he thought to create meant only writing, painting, and art alone. The greatest act of creation is life, and not just static art, but life that respirates and moves and sings and suffers. In other words, the greatest work of art respirates it breathes in creation comes through relationships we have with the living God and with one another in particular the total gift of self means handing over your whole life to God in marriage that means being open to creating new life and serving others instead of the self the church is said to be the bride of Christ and Christ emptied himself to bring new life to all its members And God does the same through all creation, as life springs from his word. God calls us to life by speaking, not struggling. Jesus brought life to all the world, starting with a small group of friends. They changed from the ways of this world into saints by giving away their time and space to others, forgetting the struggle. With Jesus at the center, the shedding of struggle became possible. The only struggle in Jesus' earthly ministry happened when competition against God's will tried to insinuate and insert itself. The Pharisees wanted control through rules. The Romans used brutal violence. James and John lobbied for top status in the kingdom, wanting to be at the right hand of Jesus. And Peter was rebuked harshly when he tried to stop the path to the cross. Whenever anyone wants to make a name for himself, a struggle begins. This is a spiritual law, it seems, from the Tower of Babel, to Pontius Pilate, to Simon Magus. The opposite of serving is gaining a name for oneself. And those who gain fame by doing God's will tend to get new names, not from themselves, but from God. As Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel, and Simon becomes Peter. With their new name comes a mission of servitude, and status only comes with their dying to self. When Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, he is talking about the status seekers and the power hungry who rule this world. To serve is to take the lowest seat, not the highest. And we should consider this whenever we admire celebrities, the wealthy, or the proud. When the guards strike Jesus in the face, he opens not his mouth. Not once does Jesus attempt to make a name for himself. He repeatedly tells others not to announce what he has done. Healing in private, he seeks no fame. And this is exactly how God creates. In peace, in quiet. Let there be light makes no sound. It just happens. Thus, when the proud loudly mock God or take his name in vain, God allows them to do that, for he is already won, and he just hopes his persecutors eventually stop trying to make a name for themselves and come to rest in his infinite peace. Surely, when he watches us struggle, it must look foolish, since he wants us to partake in his divine nature, which does not struggle. The creation of life that God gives to the universe and each human body and soul composite is an act of love. Mothers and fathers can know this to a depth that can never be understood by the childless. Dog owners often think they understand what parenthood means, but they don't. And they often sound silly when they attempt to conflate dog ownership with actual parenthood. Artists will often talk of their work as like that of a mother's love for a child, but they are ignorant of the depth of the father's love for his children or a mother's love for her child. The images of the Holy Family endure because that is the greatest work of art, a living family. We have a living family, both earthly and spiritual. For we not only have an imperfect earthly father, we have the perfect heavenly father who created our earthly father. Better still, we have our imperfect earthly mother and our spiritual mother of God, Mary, who Jesus stated from the cross for all people, There is your mother. The God who created all is not an absentee, deadbeat dad, he is near. Nor is he angry and controlling, he is simply calling us to listen and be listened to. In other words, there is no struggle in this relationship except for what we introduce into it. We bring the struggle, because we chafe against our containment in time and space, and we want to escape it and control it. Struggle ensues exactly when we deny God's will and try to make our own will, the authority, and the power. And this is a fool's game, but since the expulsion from the garden, we never seem to tire of playing it until the invasion of grace enters our lives. When Jesus steps into our boat, as he did with Peter and Andrew, the struggle can end if we let it. The creator of a work of art struggles and can love his creation, his book, his painting, song, or statue that is, quote, brought to life. But it can never be alive like a child. A book or painting cannot bind you in flesh and bone like another person that was generated by yourself and another person. And here is where the Trinity can first be discussed, but not too much yet, because that's coming in future inversions. Because when God the Father creates, the Spirit hovers over the waters. To create is the act of love, and that which is created and living will be loved by the creator. I can be indifferent to a story that I write or to a woodworking project that I completed even if I am pleased with the result. But I cannot be indifferent to a child that is alive who came from me and another from the mo- from from the child's mother. And this is why many parents seem somewhat insane. They love so deeply. They love so deeply that they err in strange ways. This is why the saying, quote, You're only as happy as your most unhappy child, hits the nail on the head for many mothers and fathers. The living creation that is generated by parents from their shared bodies can never be separated in a child. Genesis and Jesus both repeat, And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. In the same way, God loves us. The Trinity is a loving family of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is the peak of love at a greater depth with rightly ordered balance. God does not try to control us, but allows us to err with the hope that we will recognize the way back home. And since we are all children of God, can't we imagine how he feels when we ignore him? We can't fully, but we can get an idea. Now this is why the other creation stories feel like entertainment rather than truth. They are accounts of a struggle where the the true God never struggles. To read the struggle stories of creation in in the ancient world is to see what they valued, which was power. We do the same today. In poker, the big bank takes the little bank. In geopolitics, big armies and big navies control the shipping lanes. In the office, the loudest voice drives the agenda. The proud and the violent win here. And for it, we all lose. Disorder comes from struggle and squabbling over scraps from a zero-sum game that doesn't need to be played. None of the power games we play come from God, but rather from our disordered will. What we consider creation is often destruction. Fortunately, Jesus shows us God, He is a humble servant, a loving creator, a living act of love who takes the last seat at the table. Real power is to be at rest amid the storm, like when Jesus slept in the boat that was about to capsize. The seas and the wind obey him, and so should we. In America, wealth creation is something that is worshipped, and the creation of wealth is an endless struggle. Yet if Jesus returned tomorrow, he would not come forth saying, We must get the economy back on track. The only economy of concern to God is the economy of salvation for our souls. That is the plan. And to carry out that plan, we must stop struggling. But we celebrate struggle. Everything seems to be built around it today. We seek it out. Activists call for permanent revolution. They crave a struggle. Sports is an endless invented struggle of those rising and falling. Cities and nations clamor for influence. We think we love struggle, but we loathe it because it is a trap. It is a container that we crawl inside and we pull the lid down over ourselves and suffocate. We hate this competition and we want to rest, but for most of us, the draw of struggle pulls us into our own bad creation stories. Glory days and power plays are what gets remembered, not the quiet, quiet servant not the mother who made all the meals for the athletes. What we should do is notice who is not struggling. God is not struggling. He is seated. After creation, he is seated, not struggling. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But God is not indifferent. When people come to know the living God who created all things, a sense of active participation in that peace comes to them, which is why St. Augustine's memorable line rings forever true throughout the centuries, when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Restless is another word for struggle. In case you ever wonder why people like to kneel and pray in adoration chapels at Catholic churches or in the pews, it's because they are talking to the one that gives life, that gives meaning, and gives rest. Once you come to see that the only place without struggle is at the center, at the source, from whom all things are generated, then the attraction of the struggle in this world makes little sense. Aside from needing our daily bread, the struggles of our world have come from sin. To sin is to struggle. Once again, Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field who, ne- who neither toil nor spin. We have rational souls, yet we should really look to the lily or the ant or the cat for models of living in our bodies. And for our spiritual example, we have to look to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for how not to struggle but to find peace. How is it that God does not struggle? Well, he is without pride or fear. It's only we who have fallen who know pride, vanity, and sensuality, and that is the source of all struggle. Sin is the absence of God in our lives. When we sin, we reject God in favor of our pride, vanity, or sensuality. In choosing to sin, we choose disorder and struggle. But we do not harm God when we turn away. There's nothing that can harm God or overtake him. He does not force us to love him, but he invites us to do so. God is not containable. The great error is thinking that he can be contained, tricked, or boxed in. God is uncontained. His creation is an unending relationship and conversation. He creates with a living, breathing, moving, open heart toward us all. He is uncontained because he's not in competition with anything, including us. When I was in high school, I was putting dishes away one day in cupboards and drawers, and it dawned on me that everything had a container. Forks go into a drawer, but within the drawer, there's an organizer. And within the drawer container, there was another container for organizing all these little things. And I began to look around and saw that everything I did was moving things from one container to another. The world seemed to be one big containment management system. As I would wake up in the morning in the house container, I'd go to the shower container, um, which contained the water, and I'd eat breakfast moving many containers to and fro, like bowls and forks and drawers and spoons and cupboards, and then I would get into the car container to go to school, and then I would go into the school container, and in the classroom container, I'd be wearing my backpack container, and I would open up my books, which were word containers, and so on. In this theory of containment, I realized that if I go very close to a smaller scale with a microscope, there are smaller and smaller containers, from cells to molecules to atoms to protons, and all of these contain smaller things. Likewise, if I back up from my containers and look up, there are more containers like the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, And so as far as my finite mind could go in either direction, the largest container was the universe. uh, And beyond that wall, our material selves could not go. But then there were containers even for immaterial things like ideas, as we categorize things um, like platonic forms or mathematical constants or schools of thought. There were numbers that had rules of containment from Euclid to Einstein, Um, Even stories had beginning and endings, like virtual bookends. Even our imagination seemed contained by time and space. Now, this fed into a period when I discounted all spiritual things, where anything immaterial was not real, like feelings or opinions. To me, then, at that time, only scientific evidence made for knowledge. And right around that time, I became very depressed as well as I had rejected God's existence. But I did have one realization— at that time when I was looking at forks and drawers and atoms and planets, a question came to me. What would it mean to be uncontained? I felt as if this was like a Zen koan, a question like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? To be uncontained was to be free, completely elevated outside of time and space. And who could be like that? Who could always be in that place of no struggle? I know who it is. It's God. Um, Whenever I thought of what that must feel like to be truly uncontained, without the aid of mood-altering things, I recalled a day when I was working on a farm one summer, leaning on a gate at the end of a day after making silage, watching the cattle toss the fresh green food up in the air and onto their backs, almost joyfully, as the sun was setting in the big orange horizon beyond a silo silhouette. It was one of those moments where my body was tired but fulfilled and I knew that dinner would be good because I'd worked all day and the music of the spheres and the harmony of nature all seemed to be flowing in concert and I've never seen anything so good, true, and beautiful in my whole life. And that day I felt uncontained, basking in the beauty of creation. I have had other moments like this, such as when my children were born where the impossible seemed to occur right before my eyes, there have been quite a few times, like when I would be out on a long bike ride at dusk and stop for a drink of water near a cornfield, or when I would look at the stars on the hood of my car in high school with my friends, or when I hold my wife's hand, or when I listen to certain songs, or when I look at various Caravaggio paintings, like the conversion of St. Paul. To be uncontained is impossible for me because i'm finite i cannot stay in those places where i feel uncontained but i can be there from time to time like mary magdalene at the tomb at the resurrection i can witness the glory but cannot hold fast to it while i'm in this world in these moments i realized something that seemed profound at the time god is that which is uncontained and god is the only thing that is uncontainable And that is why God does not struggle. This is why he rests. Can we ever be uncontained? The answer is yes. We can partake of the divine nature. What the Eucharist means in the life of a Catholic is just this. For those who believe receiving communion is just what it means. We commune with God. We partake in the divine nature. In other words, we partake in the uncontained wonder and awe of the creator of the universe. Critical to the understanding of the Eucharist is that we are not God, but we are made in the image of God, and our life is entirely about moving back into that uncontainability. The key is to remember that I am not God, I am contained, but by partaking in His nature I can be more like Him, and in heaven I, I can be fully with Him again, for we came from the uncontained and can return there. For someday, someday we will return if we remain in His grace. Because Jesus said, by your endurance, you will gain your soul. But, like every original thought I've had, I find out later that my idea of uncontainment was not original at all. In St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 1, Chapter 3, the heading is, Everywhere God wholly fills all things, but neither heaven or nor earth contains him. Those who understand God... Uh, and the bible in the catholic church teaches have known about this notion of uncontainment for millennia sometimes i see church fathers use the term uncircumscribed which is like saying uncontained but most importantly for this inversion this is why the god of the bible is different from all the other lowercase gods all of the gods of myth are within time and space even if they are in the heavens they struggle God does not struggle, He creates, even though He did not have to create. He chose to do so out of love, and it is only we, the fallen, who choose struggle. Because our pride, vanity, and sensuality fool us, we believe that struggling against each other will gain us a higher place, but when we struggle, we dig our graves. In making a name for ourselves, we will be forgotten by God on the last day. In struggling, we lose our peace and rest, because it takes our focus off what is most good what is the highest good, which is God, the uncontained creator who does not struggle ever. Like the loving father in the parable of the prodigal son who runs out to meet his wayward son upon his return, he calls to us, he runs out to meet us, and when we return, he fills us with a wealth beyond human understanding. And that is why we are here in this world as we are. We were not kicked out of the garden as a punishment we were kicked out for our own good, so that we may come to know God and return to Him of our own free will. He invites us but never forces our hand. He calls, never coerces. He is beyond all things and sustains all things, which is why we cannot run from God. All that we create is not living, all that we create that is not living becomes rusted, corroded, and overtaken by time and nature. Every ancient temple and city dedicated to a false god has turned to dust, just as every skyscraper, stadium, and data center today will turn to dust. Every mascot and corporate logo will be as powerless and meaningless as the eagle of Rome or the oracle at Delphi. We are passing by on our way to an eternity in one of two places, like a bird flying through a window of a house And out the other window of the other side, our time is brief. Our stay here is short. And all that we create will fade, no matter how we struggle to maintain a sense of security. The pages in books we write will turn yellow. The machines will fall into disrepair and sit like rocks. But the life we create can create more life as the generations continue. And this is why a child who plays a video game is disengaged, while a child who catches a fish is full of wonder. One is playing in the world that God created, and the other is playing in an artificial world that a programmer created. Likewise, this is why a reader of James Joyce may experience something like transcendence, but a reader of the Bible, and especially the Gospels, experiences something alive. Joyce could write a book, but his book cannot generate life. But those who approach the Bible as the written word of the uncontained God who created all things and does not struggle will find life. Yes, it is a strange book that can bring a robotic modern person back to life. Interestingly, James Joyce's most famous short story was called The Dead, which referred to Jesus saying, let the dead bury their dead. This was a reference to spiritual death. When Jesus said that he is the vine, when he said, I am the vine, I am the bread of life, and I am the living water, he was telling us to plug into God. He was notifying us that struggling and floundering only happen when you desire something other than God. You will forever be searching and struggling until you come to realize that there is only one path to the end of struggle, and that is the path back home to God. Jesus reminds us, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He has created the world, he's overcome it, he rests, he's waiting for us to recognize his ever-present voice. And when we find him, in those moments, we will want to stay there and never leave. In the Eucharist at Holy Mass, we can partake in this uncontained creator. Jesus is there, truly present under the appearance of the bread and the wine. And again, Mary Magdalene at the tomb wants to stay with the risen Lord forever once she finds him, when she sees him, but she cannot. She has to move forward. And moving forward, she is full of life. She is changed. Her sadness is swept away upon seeing the risen Jesus. And how can that be? It's because she is no longer struggling, and her sorrow turns to joy. Here's the part from John chapter 20 where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Like Mary Magdalene, once we meet him, after he surprises us, we know beyond our worldly containers what is true, good, and beautiful. He invites us into that peaceful present, and then our pain and sorrow become strangely redemptive. Coming to know how he does not struggle, we can do likewise. We can go to the chapel in the heart, even when a church is nowhere near. As St. Paul said, we can pray constantly and thus be with the one that is forever uncontained by time and space while we work and live here, for the kingdom of God is among us in relationships, not in art or status or stuff. Once we recognize our relationship to God, we know the Father and we know our, Mary, our mother Mary, and we become connected to the angels and saints, including Mary Magdalene, who will pray with you if you but ask for her intercession. And then, like God, we do not have to struggle, for God alone is uncontained, and God alone satisfies.